Well, hello there. I am so glad to be talking with you today. It's the end of a long day of parenting for me, but tuning in here makes me feel connected to all of us parenting junkies out there, all of us who are joining here today, whatever day you happen to be listening to this, and taking some time to think and to inspire ourselves and re-energize ourselves and reinvigorate our minds when it comes to who we want to be in this parenting life and as mothers and fathers, how we want to claim and create a loving environment, a loving atmosphere, how we want to love parenting, right? How we want to create a life where we enjoy being parents and we just love it. We're just so happy that we have our children and that we have this experience and we feel grateful for it, at least most of the time. And where we can parent from love, where we can come from a place of love with loving intentions and motivated by love. So to all my intentional parenting junkies out there, thank you. Thank you for being here. You're listening to The Parenting Junkie Show, the place to go to love parenting and to parent from love. I'm your host, Avital. Today, we're going to talk about religion, around faith and religious practices and laws and communities and all of the baggage that comes with that. But if you're just meeting me for the first time, let me introduce myself. My name is Avital. I am a mother of four and I talk about mindset and parenting. And there are three main pillars of our work here at The Parenting Junkie. The first is I want to help you to love parenting. Like I just said, to love it, to enjoy it, for it to be something that you really love doing, even though it's challenging. The second is that I want to help you to parent from love, i.e. talk to your kids, create environments for your children, and just treat them in a way that is motivated by love. So there I talk about independent play and creating play spaces and gentle parenting and respectful language and all of that good stuff. And thirdly, we talk about parenting in love. So if you're in a relationship with another adult, with a co-parent, with a spouse, with a partner, um, a pillar of my work is helping you to create a loving environment there because I believe that is our foundation in our family. When there is an adult relationship, it's the foundation of a loving home. So that that is what I talk about on my podcast, on my videos, on my blog, on my Instagram, anywhere that you interact with me, those are going to be the topics that are coming up. And today we're talking about religion. So how does that relate to loving parenting and parenting from love? I'm so glad you asked. Allow me to explain. Every so often, and really it's so often, people ask me about how they can combine their passion for and their commitment to parenting from a loving, gentle, respectful place, not controlling their children, not punishing them, not forcing them to be who they want them to be, with their commitment to their faith, right? If you have a commitment to a certain faith and a certain religious practice, then it can become so critically important to you that your children continue that path, that your children continue the practices, that your children say the prayers and 
practice the rituals and respect the guidelines of that faith and adopt the belief system uh, that goes with that religion. But how can we get a child to adopt a belief system and to follow in our footsteps and to do all the things, sometimes things that aren't particularly comfortable or fun or (laughs) desirable for young children, how can we get them to do all those things without a control system in place, without punishments and rewards? And typically, uh, what I see around me at least is that in religious families and religious institutions that want children to adopt those religious practices, and of course they do, that's how religions survive from generation to generation and are continued, and I say all of this without an ounce of judgment, really just pure neutral uh, tone, the way they do that is typically with a rewards and punishment system, right? If you do this, you'll be rewarded by either your teachers or your priest or your rabbi or uh, your parents or God will reward you in heaven or in the future or now. Um, Or if you don't do this, you'll be punished, right? And so if we're trying to avoid that kind of controlling and manipulative system um, within our parenting, how can we then instill a love of and a commitment to and an enthusiasm for our faith if we're not going to use those systems? It's a really difficult question to answer. I, I I really find that challenging. And so one of the things I do when I find things challenging to answer is I seek answers from the people who I admire and look up to. And one of those people, as you know, is Dr. Shafali Tabari. She's a teacher, a, a mentor, and I'm proud to say a friend um, who I cherish and love and adore. And I asked her this question on your behalf and on my behalf. And I think you'll find the answer very illuminating. Now, some resistance might come up, especially if you are a person of faith, when you hear this answer, resistance is going to come up. So I just wanted you to prepare yourself for that and open your mind to what she has to say. And I'm going to help you to unpack it after we take a listen. Let's play that interview now. Dr. Shafari, what are your thoughts on raising a religious child? If parents subscribe to a specific religion and practice it, are there any conscious parenting thoughts or ways that they could inspire that religion within their child or guide their child to that religion? Or is that just a no-go in terms of conscious parenting? How, how, what are your thoughts on that? Well, let me first explain what consciousness really implies for me. It means that we have the acute penetrating wisdom to really probe into our current reality, which means to look at the institutions culture has imposed and to really determine its veracity for ourselves. Unfortunately, what I see, and people will not like my answer and they should shut off the computer right now. Unfortunately, most religious institutions are predicated not on discernment or wisdom, but more so, I'm not saying they're not wise, but more so on blind following and faith and a whole dose of fear. So we have been, whoever's indoctrinated in that religion have to understand that now their worldview and their ideology, the cosmological way of looking at things has been prescribed. It's not discerning and weighing and pros and cons and open. You're not already in a system. If you were raised religiously, please at least accept you've been raised in a system. Mm 
in a cosmological way of looking at life, how life was created, what good and bad means, what will happen to you after death, who is good, who, how to live. You have been given prescriptions. The Jews have 613 mitzvahs to follow, right? It's a prescribed way, at least on the nature of religious institutions, their prescriptions. So by following, you've already now, just by fact of that, closed yourself off to other ways. Now, why is this perhaps not the most conscious way? Because most people don't consciously discern. They have been raised a certain way and they believe that's the way. Now, talk about untangling from that. It's a heavy dose. I mean, religion is heavily indoctrinated in people and you are so afraid now by, that you will be shunned by the almighty presence if you digress. So think about if you want to raise your children with this kind of prescription, predication, fear. It's fear-based. It's also separatist. If you are Jewish, you're not Catholic. If you're Catholic, you're not Muslim. If you're Muslim, you're not Hindu. If you're Hindu, you're not Buddhist. It's, a, it's an attachment to an identity, which typically in consciousness, you're trying to detach. You're trying to let go of identities, let go of prescriptions, be open, be liberated, be free and believe in your inherent worth without having the need to always uh, prescribe to any rules and ordinances. Religion is full of rules and ordinances, hell and heaven, duality, good and bad. And consciousness and wisdom is the freedom of that. It's the freedom of saying, I am X, I am Y. It's saying, I am. So do you want to raise your children to have an identity attached to them? Or do you want them to understand that they are divine and whole? They don't need to look external. And they are worthy and fully good as they are. They don't need to be something, follow something, go to a place of worship, follow rules, fast, not fast. Uh, what did I do? And be separate from others. Can you raise your children to have oneness consciousness? So consciousness is about oneness is about non-duality, not seeing separation, not having labels, not having identities, and still being whole. So religion goes kind of against that. But consciousness can still be subsumed within the religion, but it takes tremendous discernment. You're talking about traditional religion. Traditional religion, by nature, will be at odds with consciousness because consciousness is oneness, no identification, no isms, no labeling, no prescription for how to be, which scares people. You see, that's why religion works, is because people are afraid. And religion capitalizes on that and says, okay, you're afraid? I'll give you a way to be. Come. So it works. It works for the droves. But for the spiritual seeker, the spiritual warrior, it will not work because we will see through that we don't, the, the, the herd-like uh, attitude, that we don't need to all go. We, divinity is here. Divinity is not outside. Divinity is here. But it's the seeker who will find that. It's not the ordinary common mind. It'll be the seeking mind that finds that. Thank you so much. You're brave to ask me that question. <laughs> I liked it. When it comes to religion, I've observed kind of two paths that people take when they grow up and they have children and they've been raised in a certain religion and they hold a certain faith. One is that they oblige and they follow it to the letter and they feel this fear 
uh, this this mighty giant weighty burden on their shoulders that they need to be the one to carry the torch right that if they don't pass this torch on from a previous generation to the next generation then somehow they failed the chain of thousands of people who came before them. And, you know, I once had a conversation with my father around religion and asking him why he was religious. And that is one of the main things that he shared was this sense of obligation and duty not to drop the torch. And particularly in the religion that I grew up in, in Judaism, there's this sense of generations of sacrifice, you know, of millions, literally millions of people who died in the name of religion and who died to allow us to practice our religion freely. And so there's this sense of huge duty, huge obligation, huge fear that if I don't uphold what they worked so hard to allow me, the rights that they worked so hard to give me, then I'm somehow failing, uh, you know, all of my ancestors everything that they fought for. And I want to just make a note here and say, this isn't just for religious people. You might feel this about feminism or about veganism or about any ism whatsoever. Any philosophy that has a dictate, right? A set of rules, a history, an identity around it that labels you as a certain type of person and that needs to follow certain type of behaviors you might feel that sense of obligation to pass that along to your children, right? Um, And so that's the first kind of approach is that you, then you do it all. You take it on as your identity, you do it, but often it's out of a place of fear, of duty. And when I am in that hat, right, when I am in that frame of mind with religion, then I'm going to be piling it onto my children with that same fear-based approach, that same all or nothing approach, that same feeling of you have to do this, you owe it, it's the right thing, it's the only way, right? We become dogmatic, we become um, angry and easily triggered when they're not doing the thing, right? When they're not respecting uh, the prayer or when they're not saying the blessings or when they're not wearing the right garb or when they're not behaving in a way that's expected within that religion or when they do something that transgresses in whatever kind of way, then we feel so triggered and so let down and furious and like we have to put them in their place and like we're failing as parents and often it's the grandparents or the parents-in-law who are going to be Um, kind of, you know, nudging us along that path to feel that sense of obligation and that sense of fear around our duty, our duty as parents to indoctrinate our children in that same religion that they indoctrinated us in. And I don't say that, again, I don't say that with judgment. I just, I'm just noting what often happens. It's not a judgment on, uh, on those behaviors. I understand the indoctrination. I understand it fully. I understand where it comes from. Uh, But when we are awakening to a more conscious outlook to parenting, then we are aware that much of it uh, comes from fear. A lot of it might come from faith. A lot of it might come from a, a real, true, deep set belief, a love of God or that religion or that teaching that philosophy, you know, you can be a vegan from a place of love, from a place of commitment, from a place of joy, from a place where it's your highest calling and it feels right and it feels healthy and it feels good and it feels kind. Or you can be a vegan from a place of fear and anger and fury and rage and 
and you know and judgment of others and that's a completely different energy so if you're a vegan from a place of love and your child says you know i don't care about the animals i want to eat ice cream or i want to eat steak um then it's not going to trigger you in the same way as if you are choosing veganism from a place um that is fear-based you're going to come at it completely differently, right? If you uh, are a follower of um, of any religion, right, of Christianity, whatever whatever religion you are, it doesn't matter, whatever religion, you're a follower of a specific religion and it comes from a place of faith and joy and love, um, then you can actually hold space. You have enough breathing room, you have enough uh, graciousness to understand other people's journeys. And it becomes a deeply personal journey. It becomes deeply true for you, but not something that you feel that you need to put upon other people. In fact, trying to indoctrinate others and trying to force others into our religious beliefs is often a sign of insecurity. I think when religions uh, try to, you know, persuade others and, uh, you know, cajole others and often they use violence or all sorts of tactics of persuasion or guilt. In my religion, it's very much about guilt um, for people who might leave the religion. When they use all of those tactics, it comes from a place of insecurity. Because if we were secure in our faith and secure in our belief system, then we would believe it was a light that shone out to others and others would be attracted to it. And if they weren't, we would trust that at the right time and in the right place, they would find it. It would come to them and they would enjoy it. They would be called, right? They would be called because it's the truth and because it's there for them. If we feel like we have to force people into it, we have to scare people into it, then clearly we we think it doesn't stand on its own merit to be an attractive truth for others as well. So all of this is to say that the first kind of approach is just to do it all and do it all from that place of fear. And the second approach that I see a lot of people around me in their adulthood is to kind of throw it all out. To be like, I'm done with that. I don't want anything to do with it anymore. I grew up with this in this faith or with this in this belief system or with these practices, but now my eyes have been opened and I don't want it anymore. In fact, it seems ridiculous. In fact, it seems uh, like a lie. Uh, it's out of integrity, whatever it is. And so we throw it all out. The trouble is that when we throw it all out, we often disconnect from the people that we love. We disconnect from a sense of community. And what happens here is that we actually throw out the baby with the bathwater sometimes. Do you know that phrase, throwing out the baby with the bathwater? It comes from, I believe, Roman baths, um, where they used to bathe the whole family in the family bath and then uh you know the father would go first and then you know the oldest boys and then the the women and then at the end it would be the baby and the bath water would be so brown and gross by that time that when you threw out the bath water you might be throwing out the baby if you didn't see the baby properly and the point was you throw out the rubbish but keep what's good right so the first thing I want to pose to you is, can you throw out the bathwater but keep the baby? Can you throw out the parts of whatever philosophy, religion, you know, ism that you're thinking of that, ser- that don't serve you, right? The fear, the duty, the obligation, uh, the, the, the separatism, the control, the superiority, 
the duality, the labeling, all the good, bad, right? We're good, they're bad. This is good, that's bad. Um, can we throw all of that out? Can we throw out the sense of us versus them or that we're somehow better? Can we throw out the sense that there's only one way of doing things? Can we throw out the sense that we'll be punished if we're you know, imperfect and will be rewarded if we are perfect and that there's someone there who's going to do all these bad things to bad people who don't follow the exact same path as us. Can we, can we throw out the things that make us small-minded, that make us comparative or that make us aggressive or that make us insecure? Um, can we throw out the things that make us, you know, compulsive and obsessive and that make us agitated and aggravated by any imperfection, the things that make us perfectionist? Can we throw out those parts of our religion or of our practice, right? Can we throw out the parts that are dogmatic, that are unforgiving, that are not in line with being human and just, you know, conscious and kind and compassionate and inclusive individuals? But can we keep the things that do serve us, right? If there are rituals, if there are behaviors, if there are um, ideas, values, practices that connect you to others, that connect you to God or to spirituality or to meaning, right? To connect you to, to goodness, to kindness, to compassion, to all of the values that you want to hold, uh, that connect you to a sense of belonging or identity. Can we keep those so can we keep what works and leave the rest? I was brought up with the idea that you don't get to cherry pick. You don't get to pick and choose, right? That you have to take it all on good faith. And in growing up and in going through my process, this is one of the things that I realize is never true in life. That actually one of the big things that we get to do is discern. We get to have critical thinking caps on. We get to pick and choose in life. That is our superpower. That is exactly what we get to do. And I know, I know a lot of you who have been brought up in religious homes feel that that is hearsay and is, uh, you know, against the teachings and who are we and there are generations of previous people who are holier than us and more sacred than us who gave us these teachings and we have to follow them to the letter of the law I you know respectfully disagree I think every generation has been a generation of humans and we can learn from their wisdom and we can discern what of it applies in this day and age and to this generation and I think if we want to raise our children within some kind of faith or some kind of ism I don't care if it's veganism or if it's um, you know atheism or if it's uh, Judaism, it doesn't matter. If we want to raise our children with some kind of philosophy that we're interested in them following, hopefully one day, and them adopting, then the first thing we need to do is become critical thinkers. Uh, really consciously discern what of it is in alignment with our highest good today in our modern day brains and for our children and not, not sell them a packet of, you know, pre-packed, pre-packaged sealed deal that they can't think about, that they can't figure out for themselves. Each and every generation in every philosophy has adapted and evolved. 
every religion has adapted and evolved and continues to and is vastly different from one sector to the next within that religion, right? You can't compare a Hasidic Jew to a modern Orthodox Jew. I'm just using Jews because that's the example that I know so closely, but you just can't compare. They are of the same religion and to the outside eye, it seems the same, but anyone who's remotely, uh, you know, in the know knows that they have a vastly different interpretation of so many of the things that seem the same from the outside, but are, are, are completely different from the inside. And so even within your own family unit, you can make it a completely different interpretation. You get to interpret, you get to interpret. And here's, here's the kicker. Your children get to interpret as well. So just critical thinking, critical thinking. The second thing I think we need to think about is, is what I'm doing based in fear? Does it come from a place of obligation, of duty, of fear of what the neighbors will say, of what my pastor will say, of what my teachers, my parents, the parents-in-law, uh, my grandparents, my whoever? Uh, am I afraid of what people around me will say and therefore I'm following this practice or I'm forcing my children to do this practice? Am I making them wear that thing or say that thing or do that thing because I'm worried about what other people will say? Because if I am, it may be a red flag. It may be something that says, one minute, that's not coming from a place of joy, of inspiration, of inspired action. That's coming from a place of living up, of keeping up with the Joneses, right? In the religious model of keeping up with the Joneses. And that's a place that we want to really, really put under a microscope and say, whoa, okay, this is not, I'm not doing this for the right reasons. I'm doing this to impress the school or the shul or the mosque or whoever. And so if your religious commitment comes from a place of love, comes from a place of joy, comes from a place of true belief, of um, enthusiasm, of throwing yourself into something that is meaningful to you, then you can pass that on to your children. But if it comes from a place of fear and uh, a place of embarrassment or shame or duty, all of those kind of externally driven things, then we have to question those. We just have to question them. The next thing I want you to think about is, does my religion or my faith or my practice of this make me separatist? Does the fact that I'm vegan make me superior to and sitting in judgment of and separating myself from others? Does the fact that I practice uh, whatever it is, Buddhism, mean that I am unaccepting of others and that I can't intertwine and intermingle and connect with people who aren't Buddhists? Um, do I include, do I include additional perspectives? And it's, you know, Dr. Shafali said this so well, but it's true that most religions that I know of from the inside uh, are separatist. They don't include, you know, they don't encourage connecting with all others. They don't encourage uh, looking for the common denominator above the separation. I think most of them are encouraging an us versus them mentality. Again, something that we really want to question. 
passing on to our children. The next one to question is the duality, right? In religion, there's often a sense of uh, good or bad, right? That someone has predetermined what is good and what is bad, uh, who is righteous and who is evil, who will be punished and who will be rewarded and how it will happen and, you know, who created the earth and when they created the earth and why they created people and what our purpose in life is and what will happen after we die and all these massive questions that truly... No one has the definitive answer to, but beyond that, there needs to be some spaciousness for exploration, I believe. I think it's part of the human condition that we look for meaning in our lives and we look for it by trying to understand ourselves, trying to understand who we are and why we're here. And I think that when we kind of shove religious answers down our children's throats without any space for deliberation and for uh, considering alternative perspectives and for consideration, and when we give them a very black and white picture of the earth, that this this is how it was created, good, bad, you know, evil, righteous, etc., um, then we don't encourage that critical thinking and that discernment that I that I mentioned earlier, but we also don't give them that creative license to explore the world on their own terms and through their own lens, through their own imagination. We give them this predetermined truth with a capital T that doesn't satisfy the fact that the truth is subjective that people don't have the truth with a capital T, that even within one religion and even within one sect of that religion, different people have different relationships with that truth and understand it and interpret it in a different way. And so I think just in giving our children any kind of religious education and indoctrination and stories, we always have to give it with spaciousness, with breathing room, with a sense of, hey, you know, this is what I believe. This is how I've been taught. This is what interests me, or this is how I interpret this text, or this is what um, is meaningful to me. And I'm curious to hear how you feel about it and just giving them that space to make their own interpretations. But finally, and most importantly, is the aspect of control. When it comes to religion, um, unfortunately, I've seen this firsthand in a very of upsetting way really is that it's prime fertile ground for being controlive 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 that is not a word but it should be (laughs) i mean controlling um for being controlling of our children controlive right (laughs) it's such fertile ground because when you're religious and you believe that god said you have to do this and you have to do that or else then you can immediately transfer that onto your children, right? Well, it's not me controlling you, it's God. God said you have to do these things. And we forget that the idea of all of this is for each human to develop their own relationship with that God, right? To worship that God and to understand uh, those acts and those um, rituals and those laws, again, in their own way and in their own time. And so what I wanted to offer here is rather than controlling, rather than forcing, rather than um, manipulating and you know, punishing and rewarding religious activity, 
How about we inspire it? When you have to force and cajole, the inevitable and, you know, end game there, the inevitable end game is that children are going to rebel or they'll just drop it, right? It's something that they have been cajoled and forced into, but eventually when they have their freedom and when they have their say and when they can, they shake it off. They don't have this true, intuitive, deep, uh, real, meaningful relationship with that thing. Now, I'm not saying that you can't set certain limits around certain behaviors, right? Like, I certainly think it's okay to say, well, I can't let you eat something that's not kosher, for example, right? Or I have to make sure that you, you know, whatever it is, say this uh, blessing with me. Or there are certain things that we can certainly set limits around and, and, and teach our children through action and make sure that those things happen. But for the vast majority of our religious education for our children has to be rooted in inspiration. It has to be rooted in the idea that this is joyful, that this is how we connect, that I'm excited to do this with you, that this is meaningful for me, um, and that I'm showing you ways and reasons that this is something that's uplifting, that this is something that holds truth within it, that uh, improves our lives or the lives of others, etc. right? That connects us to our ancestors or to our heritage or to our faith there has to be so much more good than than you know fear or than control you know if you think about relationships and the Gottman Institute had this research I believe where they spoke about the ratio that we need in order to have a good relationship with our partner on balance and they said that the ratio they could kind of detect couples uh, you know how likely they were to get a divorce and um, they just counted the ratio of positive to negative interactions. And a negative interaction was anything where the couple was correcting each other or, um, you know, criticizing each other or telling each other that they needed to do this or they needed to do that. Don't forget to take out the trash. Oh, you, you know, you messed up here or you forgot this. And a positive interaction was anything supportive, kind um, and, and physical. You know, it could be putting a hand on someone's shoulder or giving them a hug, etc. And if the ratio was five to one and they thought that that was kind of the basis of a good relationship. Well, how about we apply that to everything, right? How about we apply that to teaching our children math or to teaching them religion, right? You want your child to be in a good relationship with religion? Make it a good relationship. Make the ratio of their experiences five to one positive to negative. Who would want to give up on something like that, right? Five to one times, five times that they had fun and it was delicious and it was connective and it was funny and it was enjoyable and it was inspiring and it was interesting and one time they just had to do something because they had to do it or they had to sit through something because that was just part of it usually the ratio in religions I would venture to guess is about 10 to 1 in the opposite direction you have to do all these things you don't necessarily want to do and say all the things you don't necessarily want to say and go to places you don't want to go to and endure things you don't want to endure but not necessarily the fun and the uh, inspiration and the beauty and the deliciousness of, of connecting and of rituals that are meaningful and that are interesting. So how do we do that? Well, we find ways 
to bring about those, whatever you happen to be practicing, whatever practices that are relevant to our children, making it relevant, making it meaningful, making it alive for them, right? Making it a time where we come together as a family or we read awesome books or we go on great outings or we see cute and interesting documentaries or we do something that's interesting and that is educating us and connecting us to our faith or to our religion in a way that is uh, that is relevant to us. We're making it relevant. But ultimately, and this is coming back to Dr. Shafali's point, ultimately, if we want to raise our conscious awareness and raise children who are consciously aware and who are open and mindful and in touch with themselves, we've got to relinquish control over how they turn out religiously, how they practice, who they are, what religion they opt into or opt out of. We've got to relinquish that control and practice acceptance and, uh, you know, inclusivity. Coming from a place of love, coming from a place of consciousness, coming from a place of inspiration and acceptance of each person on their path without trying to live vicariously and holding on so tight to what our children need to be in order to fulfill our desires. So I guess my ultimate message to myself and to everyone out there who has somehow been part of some kind of religious upbringing or some kind of belief system is enjoy your belief system, be inspired by it, come from a place of love, find those ways of expressing it that are meaningful and that bring a lot of connection and a lot of uh, inspiration to you, to your family and to those around you. And do whatever you can to let go of the rest, to let go of the fear, to let go of the control, to let go of the idea that it's an obligation or a duty that you absolutely must uh, force or cajole or manipulate or, you know, kind of stronghold your children into. And instead, take it from a place of a lightness an inspiration, a creativity-driven uh, endeavor where we're just playing and enjoying and connecting. If you show your children how much fun there is in your way of life, how much joy there is to be had, how much health, how much happiness, uh, how much meaning there is to be had, then they're likely to follow suit because why not? It's a great example led by mom and dad and they're showing us that this is a really awesome way of life. But if you show them that it's hard and miserable and that they'll be controlled or punished or you'll get so triggered and there'll be so much emotion um, and, and guilt wrapped up in that practice, then I think it's unlikely that they're going to, you know, stick with it or at least stick with it with any sense of joy and meaning for themselves. So can we create this uplifting environment where we show rather than tell and where we inspire rather than control? Thanks for listening to The Parenting Junkie Show. If this was helpful for you, I would be so appreciative if you would subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Subscribing to the show means you'll get the bonus episodes that I only deliver here. And when you rate and review the show, it helps other parents find it. I'll be shouting out some of my favorite reviews in upcoming episodes and would love to spotlight you. And remember, keep on loving parenting and parenting from love. Namaste.